So what I wanted to share with you uh, this morning, coming off of the uh, conference, let me just ask, I'll take a little poll here. How many of you have been to five or more of these conferences over the years? Look at that. That's great. So you know that you're going to come to these and you will be pretty much barraged by information. Can we agree on this? Great. So when you leave from here and you can, you can watch them again and again on, on demand, at the same time you have to take what you've heard and then do something with it, or it's just information. So given that, it takes a, a good amount of not only what you hear, but then when you're going to go into the world and you're going to have to you know, decide what to do with the information that you get, it takes what we would call discernment. And that means that you're going to be able to make a judgment, a righteous, well-reasoned judgment about your course of action. You're going to depend upon the knowledge that God gives you, and you're going to need his wisdom to make the correct decision. So with all that said, discernment and knowledge and wisdom is precisely what uh, Solomon had asked for, and that is in 1 Kings chapter 3. So let's turn there. And as you're turning there, 1 Kings 3, this is a study that we're doing back home. And so now that I'm not in a four walls church as the pastor, my four walls is really just the little office that I have upstairs where I record them and put them up online for people that don't have church that they can drive to to do what you're doing right here. So it's kind of an online church that we do. And so studying through the Old and the New Testament, that's what I do. And I get to be just like you on a Sunday morning. I sit in Calvary Chapel of Weatherford with the other 40 or so people that call that church home, and it's an old school Calvary Chapel. And in the midst of a whole area of all kinds of churches, God's put us in a place, we didn't know it was going to be there, but it's there, and I get to sit in a church that reminds me of when we first walked into Cyprus 35, almost 36 years ago. And so God has been so, so faithful in that. Now, real quick, as Dwight had mentioned before we look at the text, what I get to do with Terry, if you go to his channel and you look up answers for today, there's a, a backlog, if you will, of five programs that you can get on demand. So each week you can watch that one and then it bumps the other ones back. So it's the most recent five weeks. But you can also go to Terry's website, which is, um, uh, goodness, Agape Chapel OC, not Orange County spelled out, Agape Chapel OC. And that's the church's name. But if you just put in Agape Chapel and Terry Reynolds, you're going to find it. And he has them all there as well, plus the things that he does too. And yeah, I would agree with, with uh, Dwight that when you get a chance to be around Terry, you cannot help but notice he spent a lot of time around Pastor Chuck. And uh, again, one of those people that I, I am so blessed to call friend and I get a chance to do that with him. We uh, jokingly will call it, uh, he's in Studio G and I'm in Studio T. And uh, Studio G means his garage. And Studio T is me in Texas. So we do that. Uh, um, we're on the phone and recording ourselves. And then he puts it all together and produces the program. But answers for today. So we look at a number of different topics. And sometimes just looking through books of the Bible. Whatever we think would be helpful to people that watch the program. So that's pretty much what that is. And yeah, it's on demand. But you can get it in a couple of different places. So that's what we do. First uh, Kings chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer and let's take a look at the text. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. As we come to your word, our prayer is that as we 
give attention to what your word has to say to us. May we have wisdom and understanding in what we read and that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to put these things into practice. Just having knowledge and even discernment and wisdom, if not employed, are not helpful to us. Help us to know the difference in those. We give you thanks. We give to you all praise and honor and all glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Bless you. Always have to say bless you when someone sneezes. It's proper. It's etiquette. Okay. First, uh, First Kings chapter 3, we read at verse 5. Now, this is, put yourself in Solomon's place, and can you imagine a more difficult thing to do than, than be a person who watches David's whole life, and you're a first-hand observer, you're his son, and by this time you already know that when dad dies that you're going to be the king, and you've got to carry that around with you for your whole life. Now, as David has gone from the scene, now it is Solomon who has to pick up and go from there. But how do you follow that act? Now, if you've studied through the books of Samuel, you'll know that after Saul is done, then you get, of course, the the life of David. And I don't know if you've ever taken the time really to study through that. And if you're convicted by the things that he did well and even the convicting of the things that he did poorly, if you are kind of doing the same thing, you probably find yourself in the place where I am and I have been where you say, I want to be that David, but I don't want to be that David, right? So it's such an interesting study in human, you know, the way that we are and we can know everything that we're supposed to do. David is just such a fascinating guy because his strength was that whenever he did something that he knew was not something that God approved of, he was instantaneous, God, I I come before you and I seek your forgiveness. And, you know, he was one of those people. His heart was in the right place at at those times. And God does not kind of keep bringing up all of his failures, though his failure with Bathsheba was going to haunt him for the rest of his life, if I can use that way of looking at it. It was going to trouble him, and the way that he troubled him the most was through his kids, right? So that's just a study in making bad choices, God can forgive you on the, on the spot the moment that you acknowledge those things and seek him for forgiveness, but it doesn't always mean that the trouble's going to go away. So look at what Nathan says to him after he's confronted. Remember the whole story about, let me throw out this hypothetical for you, David. There's a man who has a, you know, a lamb, and he tells the whole thing, and David says, that guy should be put to death. Well, you're that man. Oops. So, he tells him, really, you're, you're, the rest of your life is going to be saddled with turmoil, and it's going to be troubled. Now, not only from outside, but from inside, too, and we know Absalom. We know the whole story with that whole thing. God still saw him through that, but yeah, he had trouble. He lost sons that were killing one another. And so, if you look at the indiscretions of the father, it kind of traveled with him. So, you figure Solomon, by this time, it's... It's one of those, I've seen what dad did really, really well, and I saw the things that he did where he failed. I have the perfect blueprint. I will not fail. That's what you would think, right? Yeah, but then we have the history, and we can read that that's not exactly what happened. So it is telling for us, and and wisdom would tell us, that we look at those kind of things and say, let me put myself in the place of that. If faced with such a thing, how then should I react, and what should I rely upon? So this is what we have here. Solomon does such an amazing thing, and I believe it is absolutely genuine why he asks for what he does. So we see at verse 5 of chapter 3 at Gideon, 
the Lord appeared, or Gibeon rather, uh, appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask, what shall I give you? Imagine you being asked that. That is genuinely what happened here. Now, God knows who this man is. He even knows what the answer is going to be, but he puts it to Solomon to work through. What would I ask if God was to say, can I have this? So we read in verse 6, and Solomon said to him, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because, and here's why, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit upon his throne as it is to this day. That's the promise all the way back from 1 Samuel 7. If you remember when David wanted to build the temple and God, Nathan says to him, well, man, you got the Midas touch, go for it. And God had to say, no, 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 you got to go back and tell him, I don't want him to do it. It's his son that's going to do it, but I'm going to build for him an enduring kingdom, a household that will have a king sit upon that throne for eternity. That's what he's told. Now, of course, the the attention is turned a little bit towards Solomon and that if he walks before me rightly, then things will go well. But really, the promise ultimately will come through the person of Jesus Christ. We know this. So this is what's being spoken of here. And Solomon knows these things. Verse 7 tells us, look, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I am a little child, and I do not know how to go out or to come in. That is a way of saying, I don't know how to lead these people. So you can already see what he's about to ask for. But in verse 8, it says, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours. Now, if you take all of those words together, they really kind of mean very much the, the same types of, of things when you look at judgment and discernment and all the rest. Here is, in essence, what he says. If I consider who I am and what you've asked me to do, these are your people. He understands what that is. Of all the people on the face of the earth, there is this small group of people, and there is one person that God is going to give to him the ability to lead those people if he asks rightly and he does exactly that. I am not my father. I don't know how to do the things that he did, but I'm going to ask you that you would give to me the the wisdom that it would take in order to minister to and to judge and to rule your people. The idea of being your people makes him recognize the gravity of the request. And this idea to discern means to make a judgment about what would be good and evil and who's the one who determines good and evil. It's God himself. It's not what man thinks. So he sees what he's up against, and it's an amazing thing. So he asks for the perfect combination of things. Now, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, and it's really important that we understand those things, because again, if any of us decided to come before the Lord tonight and say, Lord, if I could ask of you something, would you give me the ability to know and then the wisdom to follow, and that I may also be able to discern, to know the difference between good and evil, that when my course is set, I would know the correct one to take. Just know that if you make that a prayer, that's something that God would say, no, I'd rather watch you crash and burn. He'd rather say, I was hoping you'd ask for that, because I'd love to direct you that way. Well, knowledge is one thing. We can know things. Now, here, let me give you an example. I know this. 
Avocado is a fruit. Did everybody know that avocado is a fruit? Wisdom would mean you don't put it in a fruit salad. That's the difference. You can know stuff, but if you do something that doesn't act upon your knowledge, you're just going to do something dumb, like take a bite of watermelon and then have a piece of avocado with it and throw it all out the way it came, right? It's like, ah, it's horrible. So to know the difference between the two, this is what he's asking very much for the Lord to give to him. I understand the gravity of the situation. You want me to lead your people. I'm not equipped to lead your people and to do what you're asking me to do. So can I ask that you would give me the knowledge that's necessary, the wisdom to do what I'm supposed to do, and when confronted with a decision of good or evil, can I discern between the two of those things? It is important that we understand what that means. Now look at what happens where God says this. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. And then God said to him, because you have asked for this thing, and you have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for life, the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, making, a, making wise decisions of governing the people. Because you've asked for that, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor anyone shall there be that will arise after you. And I have also given you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that there is uh, no one uh, like you among the kings all of your days. And so we know that it was ultimately because of all of the riches and all of those things was the reason why he was able to turn Jerusalem into what it was and build a place for the house of God, a place where the people could come corporately to worship. What an amazing thing. But notice this, qualifiers are always incredibly important for us to read in scripture. It is often that we don't look at the qualifiers because look at what he says. So if, when you see an if in scripture, when it is something that God says, I'm going to do this, but he puts the qualifier if, get familiar with it. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father, David, walked, he's given an example. Do you know that when we get these kind of examples in the New Testament, you know who we always get? If you will do this like who? like Jesus did. He will a lot of times give himself as the example. Or if we're looking at Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as who? Jesus loved whom? The church. So we always have him as the, he's the gold standard for what we would want to aspire to be. So in this case, the closest thing that you're going to get, because you've actually had a model for it, you remember your father, David. Remember how he walked before me. Now, he wasn't perfect on the fleshly side of things, but on the spiritual side of things, he was really, he did such a wonderful job of being, you know, moldable. And when God spoke to him, he was not indifferent towards those things. He was actually, read the Psalms. He's one of those people, and I hope we're all in this place. Who am I that God would speak to me? Let alone that he would turn his love towards me and that I would know who he is. Who are we that we could expect such a thing and know that he would say, well, you're the one that I've created. How could I not love you? I created you for that purpose alone. So few will ever really fully experience what that is because so many people reject the fact that he has said, I desire to fellowship with you face to face. So few understand that in our world of 8 billion people. 
But I don't think you drag yourself to church on a Sunday morning unless you're in that number of those people who genuinely say, he's turned his love towards me and I know who he is. Because he's always known me. And we love him because he first loved us, is what John tells us, correct? So then, discerning the difference between good and evil. Doesn't mean necessarily, even though God says, I'm going to give that to you in ways you couldn't imagine and everything else that you didn't ask for. That's great. But it still requires obedience on the person to whom it is promised. So again, if you've been here especially for the conference, and even if you missed the conference, doesn't mean that you don't go out into the world every single day and you are faced with any series of, de- uh, of decisions that you'll need to make. And the consequences of those decisions can be enormous. They could actually follow you around for the rest of your life. So is it not wonderful to know that there is a God who already sees the ending of these things, knows exactly how they're going to end. So God, can I maybe, as I as I start the whole process, not for a moment lean on my own understanding. Again, something Solomon tells us, we don't lean on our own understanding. We acknowledge who? Him. In all of our ways or some of our ways? Right. And what will he do? Direct your path. Because you've got a lot of ways to do things wrong every single day. A lot. But there's one that really works well. And he's willing to show that to us if we're willing to listen. And so we can find... In the scriptures, these same types of principles being taught. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Because let's look at it as far as the New Testament is concerned. Hebrews chapter 5. And let me set it up this way. Whether it is the things that we talked about in this conference. Let's just use some of those for example. We have a lot of things that we are being asked to do in our day-to-day lives. Of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And there are times when we may very well be asked to do things based on the world in which we now live that would go directly against what we know God has already instructed us to do. So how do we proceed? My decision could be seen as God looks at it as a good or an evil type of thing, but how do I know the difference between those two things? We already know the answer to it. It's obvious. God's word. And dependence upon the Holy Spirit to lead and guide. We already know that. Doesn't mean that we will always make the right decision. Worst of all, we may not even ask before we go. My, my pastor used to call it ready, fire, aim. <laughs> oh, you got that, didn't you? I can tell you people have laughed. Yeah, you don't, you don't fire until you aim, but how often do we do exactly the opposite? Ready, fire, aim. Okay. Verse 12 of Hebrews 5 tells us this. And this is a, a kind of a, a chastising of the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul. And he's saying to the people who are listening to this, you have, you've gone in reverse. By this time, you should, is a way of saying, look at yourselves. You should. Look at what he says. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but now you need someone to teach you again. Not the first time they've heard these things, but to start over again, the first principles of the oracles of God, the things that were taught to the nation. You should know these things. You should be teachers of them yourselves because that means you've learned them and you can pass them along. Instead, you need to be reminded of them. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That, that, that is, those who have by reason of their senses exercised to discern the difference between both good and evil. 
The same kind of thing that, that Solomon had asked for, we are told is available to everyone who believes because we have the word of God that tells us what is good and evil. God has taken the time to explain those things. So it's a chastising for saying, you should know this, but you haven't looked into it. And now you need to be reminded of the most elementary of things to start the whole process over again. He's telling them that they have spiritually atrophied because there's no exercise of spiritual matters. I would never want this to be said about me, that the Lord would have or send somebody to me and say, man, you've been at this for 35 years, but you need to have your backside powdered and you need a binky. <laughs> no. Do you guys, do they still call them binkies? I see somebody with a baby. Do they have, is it still binkies? Okay, pacifiers. Spiritually speaking, that's sad. If we're at the place of having walked with him for so long, but we're still an infant, it should never be so. Because God has given you everything that you could get out of your infancy. He's giving you meat to replace the milk. Pull the binky out of your mouth and have something of substance. This is what's being said. Okay, so whether it's Solomon and what he asks for, or whether it is us as we look at the word of God and make the proper application, we have everything necessary to do what we in our own hearts and minds want to do. So as we follow through this, vigilance is also a part of this. This is an element of it. So take a look at the book. It's 1 Peter. Take a look at 1 Peter, and we're going to go to chapter 5. And here is Peter in, in a general epistle talking about things of order. And in a church, it's the younger and the older. Interestingly enough, this was going to be kind of a problem that would happen after Solomon was gone. When it was Rehoboam who had to take over for him, he wouldn't listen to the older people. Instead, he listened to the younger guys who didn't really know what was what. They may have been flashy and they may have had what they thought were great ideas, but it really split the kingdom. Now, Solomon already knew that that was going to happen because God told him it was going to happen. And we'll find out why in just a moment. But the idea that there are those people who have gone through it before. And again, I don't, I don't want to point out any one person and, and prop them up or anything else. But this I know. Dwight has seen a lot of stuff over the years around being a pastor. He's been through an awful lot of battles. And I'm just the type of person, I'm sure most of us are the same way. How many people like to open the door into their nose? Anybody like doing stuff like that? No, I'd rather talk to somebody who's actually had to go through something before and tell me, no, 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 don't do it that way. You're just going to open the door into your nose. I, I can call and ask Dwight, hey, have you ever ran across something like this? And I did it on more than one occasion, especially when I pastored. I got this thing going on back at church. So you ever run across something like this? I want to lean on what he has to say. Because chances are, the first time he went through it, there was some collateral damage that happened, maybe even to him. And it was directed at him and trying to bring down the entirety of the ministry. I'd rather learn from a guy who's been through it than to say, no, I don't need to lean on anybody else. I'm just going to go through it myself. That's foolish. That's just dumb. So here, as we read through this, he says, look, you younger guys and you older guys, this is, what, this is how it's supposed to be. Younger guys, listen to the older guys. Older guys, pay attention and teach the, the, the younger, but make sure that both of you, the discipler and the disciplee, are following Jesus or else it's just going to be philosophy. And philosophy is just harmful if it's man's wisdom. So he says this, read it. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you who uh, you be submissive to one another, 
to be clothed with humility, taken from Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You have right there such a profound thing. Here's what I'm told. If a person has humility to say, I'm not equipped to make these decisions, but you can equip me to do so, God says, that's humility, and I can do a lot with that. But the person that would say, no, I got it all figured out. I mean, I've been here before. I know what's going on. God's going to say, yeah, well, that's a little bit of pride and arrogance. I'm going to resist that. Who wants to have God say, I resist you? You got an option here. So look at what he says after that. Therefore, because that's the truth, he says in verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him. And why? Because he cares for you. But notice what he says here. Now then be sober. And that sobriety of mind. And of course, in the, in the physical sense too. Sobriety is an important point because why would you want to do something that would impair your judgment? Especially in spiritual matters. So he says, be sober and then be vigilant. That means to be on guard. So everything that we've talked about this, this weekend really calls for vigilance in the church. It calls for sobriety of mind. It calls for discernment because look at what he says after that and here's why your adversary the devil he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour I don't think anybody doubts that and just realize if not for the covering of God and for his direction we would all be wiped out by him he hates you hates you English doesn't really capture how much he hates you I just take it from me he hates you are we clear So what does he say? Resist him. It's not in your own strength. It's just like, I don't have time for this. Resistance means turning away. I'm not going to engage. Resist him. Says this, steadfast in the faith, and the faith is in whom you trust. I trust Jesus. I will resist him by relying upon the Lord. I'm not going to buy into what he's selling. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced through your brotherhood, through your brethren rather, who are in the world. So there is this matter of vigilance. There is this matter of discernment. And then there is also the recognition that we want to make sure we say, but what happens when there is failure? We know the reason why Solomon went from, how does, if you've ever asked yourself the question, okay, Chris, I think I'm tracking with you about Solomon and discernment and all the rest of it. But how do you go from, the saying pleased God, verse 12 of chapter 3, to the book of Ecclesiastes. How do you get from that to that? You guys know Ecclesiastes, right? Oh, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. How do you get to that place? When God says, I'm pleased with what you asked. Everything that you asked for, I'm going to give it to you in ways I've never given it to anyone else, and you're going to get a whole bunch of other stuff in, in addition to it. So then how do you get to the place of vanities? Vanity of vanities. There is nothing new under the sun. How many of you have read through the book of of Ecclesiastes? That is an an ode to frustration and futility. Right? So how do you get from 1 Kings 3 to that? 1 Kings 11. That's how you get there. Okay, we'll read it since you insist. Now, this is funny, and I'm assuming that this is accurate according to the history, but how many of you have been to Israel? Okay, so how many of you, if I say you're in, this, you're in the city of David, do you know what I mean when I say that? Okay, the temple mounts at your back at a higher elevation, you're in the city of David, and you're kind of, it's heading you out a little bit towards the south, so you're looking out that way. 
if you can remember this, over here is the Mount of Olives. Kidron Valley runs this way. The Hinnom's over here. They kind of come to a point, and you look up, and there's some hills out there in front of you. Do you know what those are? They're known as the hill, one of them in particular is known as the hill of evil counsel or the hill of evil speaking. What took place there? That's where they housed Solomon's wives and concubines. Because you can't have a thousand of them hanging out in the palace. That would be awkward, right? So there's got to be a place to put them. Well, they call it the, house of, or the, the place of evil speaking, not because they were bad, but because of what they believed. So the, the things that would take place there with the foreign gods was not a great thing. Now, the irony of that, if it's actually true that that is, that's what the historians will tell you. And, you know, from, from basically what they know, that's where they would have been. Uh, is also the place where the uh, headquarters of the UN is in, in uh, Israel. That's just poetic, man. I love that. That's funny. Never forget it. It's, every time I go, I point it out to everybody. I said, that's a hill of evil speaking in that building that belongs to the UN. Well, <laughs> chapter 11, look at this. Verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. How do you go from the smartest, most knowledgeable, wisest man on the planet? Your own passions overtake you. And you just don't know how to say no. That's the recipe for disaster. You can discern the difference between good and evil. Somebody could say, I want to make a pact with you, Solomon, because clearly you're the big guy on the block. Here's my daughter. You would say, God tells me I can't do that. I appreciate the offer. It's not that she's not beautiful, and I appreciate that you're willing to entrust me with her, but I can't do that. He didn't do that, and he did so a thousand times. <laughs> ah, so if you think this is about you know, women are a curse. Look, the women would say, you give me a thousand husbands, it'd be the same disaster, right? I can't take care of the one and keep him clean as it is. So a thousand more is like, forget it. Works both ways. I understand that. <laughs> I don't think my wife's watching this. Verse two. <laughs> so he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was his father David. Remember the qualifier that I told you to pay close attention to in chapter 3? I will do this if you will do that. You have a model. You have David, and I've put in you everything necessary wisdom and knowledge, and the ability to discern the difference between good and evil, but he ran the stop sign. Anybody ever done that? And you can never say, God, I wouldn't have done it if you had, if, if you just told me. He said, you know, some of the things that Solomon asks for, if you look at the original language, it's, I'm going to give you the ability to hear. You're going to know when you hear something, you're going to be able to know how to act thereafter. You'll be able to hear and to discern and to know and to apply knowledge and wisdom like no one's ever done it. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be forced upon him because look at what he did and look at what happens to him. Goes on. 
Solomon, verse 6, did evil in the sight of the Lord and he did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Verse 9, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord his God, the God of Israel who had appeared to him on two occasions. So the other one would have been when? The building of the temple. Verse 10, He commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after foreign gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Oh, if we could learn this lesson. Many of us have probably already learned it at times the hard way. His, unfortunately, because of who he was, was going to have catastrophic events would follow from this because of these bad decisions. The scriptures are given to us that we can have a blueprint for what to do and what not to do. And this is one of those occasions, ladies and gentlemen, because, again, I know that we put together, the, the or they put together here at the church, and the people who come and present, we put together messages and information so that you can be made aware of the things going on around you. So that when you encounter them, if you didn't know already what was going on, the things that are at, at the, the conference gives you the ability to say, oh, I was hearing about this, I now recognize it. And if it wasn't even the conferences, the things that are shared over this pulpit week in and week out have the same way of just saying, here's God's instruction. So take heed to what God has said to you because it's going to affect you in your day-to-day life as you go and walk through the world. So pay attention. God's given you everything necessary. He's given you instruction. He's given you a mind to comprehend it. He has given to you the Holy Spirit who can lead and guide and direct you. So we can read through these kinds of passages and we genuinely understand them. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes since I had mentioned it as we wrap up. The book of Ecclesiastes. And I find this to be so fascinating because you could almost think, you know, I more than likely could write this book for him. It's pretty clear by some of the internal information that's in Ecclesiastes He's writing this at the end of his life because he's talking about, I've brought to myself houses and, you know, I've built palaces and I've done all that. So it's much later in his life. It makes perfect sense because of the futility of his arguments. Now, he would have written Ecclesiastes by 1 Kings chapter 4. He just got the good news. Hey, in the annals of human history, when they think of the wisest, most knowledgeable guy there's ever been, your name's at the top of that list because God said so. You're not going to go, oh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, there's nothing new under the sun. You have to go through life and do some pretty goofy things to get yourself to the place where you're saying that kind of stuff. Where did he do and what did he do? Chapter 11, we just read it. So to go from, I heard somebody say once, uh, from the uttermost to the guttermost, to go from chapter 3 to chapter 11 is going to lead you to Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the words of the preacher, Ecclesiastes, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. We know who's, who's writing this. So at the end of his life, or later on in life, after he's done all the things he probably wishes he had another bite at the apple, to use the metaphor, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It means it's empty and it is of no value. Now that's not just the wives and concubines. It is the idea of amassing to yourself things. 
Because here's the problem. Most of the time when we gather things to ourselves, they become a substitute in some way for something more important. And that could be the time that we spend or dedicate to the Lord himself. Because we're so busy amassing things to ourselves. Isn't it interesting to watch what's happened to people during the era of COVID when all things are stripped away and most people don't know what to do with themselves? Have you noticed it? Maybe even some of us in here have struggled with that thing. What do I do now? That means you haven't had a lot of alone time over the years. You're busy pursuing after things. Well, they can be stripped away in a moment, and we're living in the midst of that. And that has a psychological effect on so many people, especially those who have no hope. That's why we find the depression and the suicide and everything that's happening because of how we are dealing with this viral thing. Again, great time to have a little bit of knowledge and wisdom and direction and the idea that we can discern the difference between good and evil. In this world right now, it's more important than ever. Um, before I read the rest of this, I'll just address it this way because there's always people that will pray with you after the services. But if, if COVID and the changes in our world have gotten the better of you and you find yourself in any kind of crisis, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, or anything else, you make sure you come down and pray with the people afterwards because in the person of Jesus Christ, there is more than just hope. There's more than just light at the end of the tunnel. He turns everything on and it is brilliant. You will never not know what to do. Verse three, what profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? The futility of it all. He's gonna go on. Verse four, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to one place where it rose and the wind goes to the south, turns to the north and the wind whirls about continually and then it comes again into its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is never filled. To the place from where the rivers come, they will return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been done, it will be. Uh, that which has been, rather, it will be. And that which is done, that will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? Do you, do you catch in him just this, why do we do it? Why do we find ourselves in this place, the futility of it all? So how then do you go from that place of being, there's never going to be another one like you, if you walk with me as your father walked with me? We have his whole life to look at and say, he started well. The middle of his life was really a mess. And now he writes these things. And the rest of the book is to say, follow my example by not continuing my failures. If I can share with you the summation of this, it's book ended in this very same chapter, this very same book. Turn with me to chapter 12. And I'll recap everything that we just have looked at in about 30 seconds. The believer is able to come to the Lord and say, this life is so filled with things that could trip me up the devil wants to see my life wrecked. But you, however, Lord, don't want to see that outcome. So you have then given me the ability to lean upon you for knowledge and wisdom, for direction, for discernment, and you've given me your Holy Spirit and your word for all of the above. May I walk with you as you have offered to walk with me if I will but depend upon you. What's the answer? Look at the last two verses in this book. 
Let us then hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God, do his commandments, for this is man's all. That is the easiest summation as you could possibly find because then this other part to say, God's not indifferent, take a look. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. So the things that he was told he would be able to discern the difference between good and evil are the same things that tripped him up. And he writes the entire book to tell you, I wish I had those things to do over again. Because the first chapter is filled with the futility of life and the frustration that comes from knowing what you're supposed to do and not doing it. So from a man who would know better than anyone, probably I could imagine, because of the weight of having what he asked for, and then failing at it, he's going to write Ecclesiastes. But then he says to all of us, taking into account what we just read through in the book of Hebrews, I will give to you the ability to discern between good and evil because I have given to you my word, my oracles, the things that have been told to us. We got 2,000 years of hindsight. We are in better shape than any generation before us for a variety of reasons. The ease with which we can access the Bible and anything about it is unprecedented in the history of mankind. We're living in the end times, and we can see it by just thumbing through a few verses here and there in the Bible, and we know where we are in time. And that same God says, I'm not going to abandon you in the middle of all that. In fact, I'll give you the ability to know what to do in the midst of it. God forbid we would ever write Ecclesiastes as the ending of each of our lives. Instead, can we lay hold of verses 13 and 14? Just do what God said in the first place, Because you just know that every action is going to have an outcome. Every single one. But God sees the end from the beginning and how I thank him for that. Father, we thank you that you have given to us hope that this world does not comprehend. In fact, we don't either. We can't understand the depths of it. We just trust it by faith because you promised it. Now we ask, Lord, that you would go before us at the end of this conference, so much information. But even if it's not just the content of the conference, how about just the things that you show us through the word? Whether it's together as a corporate body, studying through the word together as the body here assembled, or if it's just our times as we we read and we study through your word on our own. May we have the, the presence of mind to ask the question, if, if I walk with you, and are we? Are we obedient to what you have given us as direction? May we walk with you in such a way that brings honor and glory to you and never brings us to the place of saying vanity of vanities. May we instead say, just do what you said. We thank you. We give you all praise. Go before us in power in these days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless all of you.